Welcome back to Plenary Session. This is the podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm professor of medicine here at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doc, and I'm interested in everything in health policy and evidence-based medicine. And that's what you get on this podcast. Now listen, I'll be at ASH this year. If you have abstracts you want me to cover, email them at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm going to try to hit all the big ones. I'm going to have videos on YouTube as fast as I can put them out. If you like this podcast, if you're someone out there who's been listening for years and you haven't yet written a review on the iTunes store, go ahead and do it. If you haven't recommended it to a friend, do that as well. This is a podcast that tries to offer something different, and we'll do that in this episode. This episode's got two parts. For 30 minutes, I'm going to take you through a Twitter battle between Dr. Aaron Goodman, Dr. Vincent Rajkumar. This is about should I treat high-risk smoldering myeloma? You won't want to miss this battle. And then... I'm going to walk you through a new paper out in JAMA Network Open, a critical appraisal of a paper that compares people who came in with symptoms and they tested positive for COVID and those who came in and tested negative for COVID. It follows them three months later and it asks, long COVID versus long URI. So we've got Raj Kumar versus Goodman, long COVID versus long URI. Stay tuned. This is going to be a great episode of Plenary Session. Welcome back. A Twitter battle happened a few days ago, and I'm going to annotate it for you. This is about whether or not you ought to treat high-risk smoldering myeloma outside of a randomized control trial. In one corner, we have Dr. Vincent Rajkumar from the Mayo Clinic. In another corner, we have Dr. Aaron Goodman from University of California, San Diego. And I, Dr. Vinay Prasad, am going to walk you through these arguments. All three of us take care of multiple myeloma patients. All three of us have a panel with a lot of myeloma patients. Let's get into this. Let's talk about should we treat high-risk smoldering myeloma. I call this the Twitter battle, Rajkumar versus Goodman. Let's get started. So opening gambit, Vincent has this tweet. Smoldering myeloma is not a pre-malignancy. It is not analogous to a polyp. It is a heterogeneous entity in which some patients have malignancy and some have pre-malignancy. And we use biomarkers to try to sort out those two. To which Aaron Goodman replies, Kind of sounds like a polyp. Some progress and some don't. And this is a philosophical question. Where in the pre-malignant spectrum does something become a malignancy? Of course, smoldering myeloma, by definition, is something you don't feel. It's something that you detect when you find an M protein and when you go looking in the bone marrow. And it has certain characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. And there are features that connote high risk, the high risk of progressing to myeloma, which has end organ damage prior to the change of definition. And there are features that say that it's more likely to be indolent. And the question is, do we treat smoldering myeloma, which is something that we haven't done, we're going to revisit in this video why we haven't done it, with the novel drugs? Are we ready to treat? And this is the debate between Aaron Goodman, Vincent Rajkumar, two myeloma doctors, and now let's toss a third myeloma doctor, me, into the mix, okay? This is the algorithm that Dr. Rajkumar linked to, and it basically says, if you have myeloma, treat as myeloma. If you have high-risk smoldering myeloma, there's sufficient evidence to use lenalidomide, which is the ECOG study, or Revdex, and that's based on the Jesus San Miguel study, uh, that phase two study that was in New England Journal of Medicine. It says to treat, and we're going to talk about some of the challenges with this paradigm. I think it suffers from a big problem. One is... I think you could safely argue that you ought not treat with current evidence high-risk smoldering myeloma. The other thing you could argue is if you were going to treat it, if you're going to treat it as if it was myeloma, why the hell are you just giving Revlimid alone? That seems like insufficient therapy. We'll talk about that. This is a paper from Bob Kyle, 2007, NEJM, and it shows the difference between monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance, or MGUS, and smoldering MM. And what it shows is that with smoldering myeloma, that it has a much higher rate of progression over time to multiple myeloma. But MGUS 
It's not zero. It also has a rate of progression to multiple myeloma. And I want to just point out here, you know, at 20 month, at 20 years since follow-up, it was 78% and 21%. You know, this is the Kyle paper. This is the Mayo Clinic data. We'll put him on the map when it comes to myeloma. We have a lot of risk scores in recent years that use things like aberrant CD138, free light chain ratios, M protein, bone marrow percentages, et cetera, et cetera, fish abnormalities. And you can try to find different risk scores that find the people at the highest risk of progression. This is showing you a five-year time horizon, high risk smoldering, intermediate risk smoldering, low risk smoldering, and then the low risk group. And my point here is just that, you know, there is no risk classification that tells you 100% sure that this person is going to progress. And even the highest of high risks have a fraction of people that still have not progressed even with five years follow-up. That's the big take-home point, that nobody has a perfect tool that will tell you who is going to progress. What about polyps? The analogy was made to polyps. And it actually turns out that polyps also have a risk of progression to colorectal cancer. And the more I thought about this analogy, I thought it actually kind of cuts the other way. So this is a study that came out uh, in a British journal, and it actually tracks the rate of polyps progressing to CRC depending on the age of the person in whom the polyp was followed. And 10-year progression rates can be non-trivial. I mean, they can be in the 40 percentage points range of becoming colorectal cancer if left untreated. And these are looking at polyps rather broadly. But polyps, just like smoldering, can be further risk stratified. There are tubular villus adenoma polyps with high-risk dysplasia. Those ain't good. And there's smoldering myeloma that's high risk. And that is also much more likely to progress. And there are no perfect statistics for what's the rate of polyps progressing in the absence of snipping them out because... No one has not snipped them out. You can't really find a cohort in which they haven't been snipped out because you'd have to have done the exam to find it. And then if you had found it, you probably would have snipped it out. I will say for the sake of argument that one might argue that there is a small difference in degree between the rate of progression. Now, the figures I showed you were for all polyps, not for tubular villus adenoma polyps with high-risk dysplasia, which is probably a little bit higher. But you could argue that high-risk smoldering is maybe slightly more likely percent points per year to progress than even the worst adenomatous polyp, although there are probably some that really are very quite close. But this is the difference in degree and not a difference in kind. I mean, nobody thinks that going from a 7% annual risk of progression to a 12%, there's some magic cutoff where we have to throw our hands up and say it's cancer. These are differences in degree, not of kind. And if anything, the case is stronger to intervene on polyps than it is on smoldering. Why? Polyps can be removed in a surgical or mechanical procedure without any systemic effects. Polyps can be removed in a moment, completely removed at modest cost. Smoldering myeloma requires lifelong treatment, committing someone to drugs for the rest of their life. Those drugs go throughout the body and have toxicity throughout the body. The drugs are given every single day forever. The polyp is removed in one moment in time, and then you never have to think about it again. The drugs cost a tremendous amount of money, and money, I think, is the root of evil here. This is why the entire field is being distorted in myeloma, and they're forgetting their root principles. It doesn't stop with smoldering. So if anything, I think the case is that even at lower thresholds of progression, one would act on polyps, but still have a substantive case not to act on smoldering myeloma. So I think the polyp analogy actually backfires. Goodman goes on. It kind of sounds like a polyp, some progress, some doubt. Vincent writes, that's a fundamental misunderstanding. MGUS is like a polyp, a premalignancy. A polyp is premalignant. MGUS is premalignant. Smoldering, you have 65% who have MGUS and 35% who have a malignancy at the time of diagnosis. It's heterogeneous. The risk of high-risk smoldering we define as 25% progression in one year. Polyps don't have 25% risk of progression in one year or 50% in two years. I think people may quibble about 
exactly, you know, if you really find a TVA with really severe high-risk dysplasia, it might be quite high, maybe double-digit percentage points. Maybe it's not 25 per annum, but it's not out of the ballpark. And also, you really don't have great natural history studies there because people haven't not cut them out. So there might be a difference in degree, but not a difference in kind. Aaron goes on. That doesn't mean it's pre-malignancy. Under current definitions of smoldering myeloma, there's a non-trivial number of patients who do not progress and can be safely observed. I'm open to changing my mind. I just need more data. I recognize difference in opinions. Dr. Rajkumar, read the thread. The recommendations treat only the one-third of smoldering myeloma classified as high risk at 50% progression in two years. In the Spanish trial, all but two people progressed. Aaron writes, for me, to treat someone for a long time, I need more data. I don't think I'm alone in such an opinion. Your trial did not have enough high-risk patients for me to come to any conclusion. And the endpoint of PFS is not enough for me to change my practice in asymptomatic patients. I read a nice paper in Blood Journal recently by Maury Gertz, and I know others who share similar views. Maury, of course, is like-minded with me and Aaron. Aaron goes on, final thought. If I had high-risk smoldering myeloma, I would definitely want to be watched closely, and then I would start treatment with RVD, plus or minus DARA, on progression to avert cancer. My fear is treatment of smoldering with REV both over-treats and under-treats at the same time. Ah, now he's getting into it. That's a very good point. Vincent right back. You can do it as a personal risk, but don't put your patients at risk. There's a 90% risk of end-organ damage before you intervene. I've seen how this story plays out with people who are this confident in talking about how they will catch progression by close follow-up. Aaron writes back, but this statement is not fair in my opinion. End organ damage? How many patients had spine fractures, broken hips, or irreversible kidney damage? Vincent writes, read up. I've read the supplement of your paper and I cannot find the data. Do you have it? Vincent says, really? It's in Appendix 6. In the ECOG study, we had 28 progressions, 3 were renal failure, 14 bone lesions. See the table. Aaron writes, I'm well-versed in this table as it is in my grand rounds talks on the subject, but the table doesn't answer the question. Does the table answer the question? Here's the table. The table looks at the randomized phase 3 Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group study by Loniol and colleagues. And this looks at when the control arm progressed, what did they progress with? And it's here clearly documented here, hypercalcemia, anemia, renal failure, and how many people had bone lesions. But here's the rub. This is the difference between what Aaron and Vincent are talking about. Vincent says it's there. Aaron says it's not there. They're talking about slightly different things. The question is, we don't know how many people had bone lesions detectable on radiography only, and people had painful bone fractures. We don't know how many people required surgery for those bone fractures, and how many people, once they were told about it, started treatment, they never felt it or noticed it. We don't know how many people whose creatinine became elevated had uncorrectable creatinine elevations and how many in which are corrected with treatment. And we don't know who went on dialysis forever. So Aaron's point is that the clinical manifestations of myeloma being on dialysis, broken bones, I care about that. I haven't seen proof of that. And Vincent's point is, well, we know that, you know, we have these radiographic findings and that some people had an elevation in creatinine. Vincent writes, we follow patients monthly, which is more than done in routine practice. When they had end organ damage as defined in the protocol, they come off study. We don't watch patients after they come off study to see what type of end organ damage you list. And that's the rub. One could argue they ought to have done that. I mean, one would have wanted to do that if you're going to make the claim that you're averting dialysis. You'd want to measure whether you're averting dialysis. It goes on. It goes on. Aaron writes, I see my question has been how many are pet lesions that are asymptomatic or renal failure anemia that's reversible. Clearly, if we prevented broken backs, I'd be on board. Vincent writes, this is why it's so easy to criticize a randomized trial and so hard to do one. Please do the sample size math and the duration of follow-up calculations, not to speak of the ethical issues where only the endpoints you describe would be sufficient. Aaron writes, on the ethical issue point, I've got to say that it's a problematic because if, if you can ethically run a trial where the primary endpoint is overall survival, which is the most important thing that happens to someone in their life, 
you could easily ethically run an endpoint where the primary endpoint is symptomatic fractures. In fact, we've done many for bisphosphonates, et cetera. So, I mean, I think that's kind of a, ethics is not the issue. It's a sample size and power. Aaron writes, if a very large study is needed to show clinically significant prevention of irreversible organ damage, then I guess the event you describe doesn't happen often. And this is really an interesting point, which is that if you need a sample size of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, it can't be a frequent event. Vincent writes, it does. Don't trivialize a serious problem. My God, end. All right, that was the dialogue. Let's break it down. Let's break it down. I think there's at least four key conceptual problems in this dialogue, um, and I want to unpack them for you. I think it's interesting. It's telling um, about the state of high-risk smoldering myeloma. So number one, I think Vincent leads with an opening gambit that smoldering is a mix of 65% amgus and 35%. It's practically already myeloma. Okay, if that's his opening gambit, then this is the problem that I see with his study that Aaron is alluding to, which is that their own guidelines say that treat as myeloma, which means at least a triplet. I think in the modern age, in 2022, it would be negligent to treat de novo myeloma with anything less than a triplet based on the consensus of everybody and all the guidelines. And yet here, for the 35% of people, 50% of 35%, who have high-risk smoldering myeloma are gonna progress in the next two years, they say treat with only lenalidomide. So here's the question, which is that if you're saying we're trying to find this 35% and treat them as if they have myeloma, then why are you not treating them as if they have myeloma? Imagine I had a patient with multiple myeloma and I just gave them Revlimid alone. You would say, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you doing that? That's negligent therapy. And yet here they're recommending negligent therapy. And so Aaron's point is that you're both over-treating the people who had the MGUS in there. There's gonna be some bleed in because no risk factor system finds 100% of people who invariably progress. And his other point is you're under-treating the people who you think actually have myeloma in there. You're under-treating them because Revlimid alone is inadequate therapy. So I think this guideline scheme makes no sense. I mean, they'll have to concede that. That's a problem they face. If they want to treat, why aren't you recommending triplets? Two, ignorance of history. I think we have, we've done a total 180 on ignorance of history. I'm going to take you back to 93, 94, 2000. These were three seminal studies where they initially tried to treat people with Dury salmon stage one myeloma who were asymptomatic, didn't have end organ damage, but was on the spectrum, what we would consider smoldering today. And in all these treatments, they treated early versus treated late with largely melphalan-containing regimens because prior to you know the advent of Thal, that's what we had. And in all of these studies, the primary endpoint they cared about was overall survival. They also cared about responses, but they weren't seduced by the, the, the phantom of PFS. You know, the rise of PFS has really been driven by the pharmaceutical companies. It wasn't something that we obsessed about PFS, PFS. We used to obsess about overall survival and activity because of Mortel. Let me walk you through these studies. This was the 93 study, a study of deferred treatment versus initial therapy. This is all-cause mortality shown here on the, on the y-axis. And what you see very clearly is that, although sample size very small, there didn't appear to be any benefit in terms of survival in treating asymptomatic or what we would consider smoldering myeloma patients. The authors write, in 1983, when this study was started, watch and wait for asymptomatic myeloma was generally not accepted. Actually, it was not accepted when they started in 83, and many clinicians hesitated to defer treatment. This lack of consensus was our main incentive for the study. Nowadays, the concept of smoldering and indolent myeloma are well-established, and watchful waiting policy is well-established, but when we did this, it wasn't. They go on. A possible advantage of deferral of therapy is illustrated by two cases of secondary leukemia, both occurring in the initial treatment group. This is an important point. Revlimid also has risks of secondary malignancy, and I know people try to hide it behind alkylators plus Revlimid, but Revlimid alone does. And what they're saying is that 
The reason we need overall survival is we don't know the full toxicity of giving more chemo, chemotherapeutic treatment to people for more years. It's true for Mel and it's true for R. It's not untrue for R. They go on, concluding remarks. In asymptomatic myeloma, deferral of chemotherapy is feasible if the patient is well-informed and can be closely followed by regular visits for clinical and laboratory evaluation at maximal intervals of two months. This is 93, two months. Vincent is saying we did one month and no one does that. They're recommending less than two months in 93. Poorly informed patients and longer checkup intervals involve an obvious risk of dis disabling complications if a rapid disease progression should occur, outweighing possible benefits of treatment deferral. This is back in 93. They're moving because they failed to find a survival benefit of early upfront treatment over delayed treatment. They said don't treat smoldering, 93. And in fact, follow them closely. 94. Next study. This is the same sort of thing, except it's a different combination, melphalan-based chemotherapy versus observation. It's still small sample size. Okay, this is the, this, by the way, people are going to complain about sample size. This is in 2022, okay? This is back in the diggity. And by the way, by 2042, the studies you're using now are going to look like horse shit because they're too small and the endpoint is too stupid. By 2042, 2062, they're going to be running the appropriate studies because the history of medicine is a march towards progress, even though people say you can't do randomized studies they're so hard to do in fact we just do bigger and better ones and and the, the people who are critics of randomization they're always going to lose they're not going to live forever and smarter people are going to come along that's the nature of life in patients with early disease cytostatics may be delayed at time of disease progression that's their conclusion in 1994 in 2000 another study this is the third study melphalan based regimens they write the results of our study the lack of overall survival benefit indicates that de deferring treatment is a reasonable alternative to immediate chemotherapy. And these three studies from 93 to 2000 changed the stage. I mean, you know, from the 80s when people were had a hard time not treating to the 90s and early 2000s when we decided smoldering is not going to be treated until we can prove that people live longer or live better. And I think the debate is, have we, have we proven that? In 2000, in the paper, they make the same point that second tumors may arise because of early exposure to these drugs. And this is different than a polyp. No one can say uh, by snipping polyps, you're more likely to get secondary leukemia. Why? Because we're not giving you anything systemic and we're not leaving it in your body for years on end. Whereas that's different with Revlimid, which is a known teratogen and also mutagen. Okay, so it's a big difference. Okay, from the original 1993 study and present series, a possible disadvantage to deferring therapy is that two to 3% of untreated patients experience vertebral compression. Although this fact does not influence survival, untreated patients must be well-informed and promptly examined whenever clinical or laboratory examined data suggests progression. So that was the state of the science before the modern drug companies started to suck every dollar bill out of the myeloma community and out of the insurance companies and out of all of us because we pay for insurance. Now myeloma is one of the most lucrative diagnoses. The drugs are so, so expensive. And so all of the principles of good oncology care, don't treat someone who's asymptomatic if you can't make them live longer, live better. Those have fallen out of favor with new principles, which is prove it to me that I shouldn't be giving these drugs indefinitely. And by the way, Jansen really likes that. And so we're going to be doing that until you say otherwise. Modern randomized control trials are a failure. There are two modern randomized control trials that is the basis of treating high-risk smoldering myeloma. They are both catastrophic failures. They're failures of trial design, possibly even unethical because of what happened. Let's talk about them. Number one. This is the Maria Mateos, Jesus San Miguel study in the New England Journal of Medicine. It is the Quiretics study. That's what they call it. 
It's not a very useful study. It took people with high-risk smoldering myeloma, randomized them to RevDex or observation. And when you had observation, you know, clearly active anti-myeloma drugs will delay, delay the time until myeloma progression. For instance, if we just put Revlimid in the water supply, I'm sure you're going to get less myeloma. But the problem is you're going to get a lot of problems, right? So Revlimid is not a benign drug. PFS is better. Duh, duh, duh. OS, they say, is better. But look at the sample size, 5762 people. This is a volatile estimate, okay? It's not the primary endpoint of the study. It's not designed, powered, or suited for OS. It could never survive regulatory scrutiny. For instance, they did not take this and submit it to the US FDA and ask for marketing authorization for smoldering because the FDA would say no. They would say no because this is not suitable. Problems with this study. One, they didn't do PET-CT on entry. We do PET-CT in the United States to find people with myeloma. By not doing it, there are people in high-risk myeloma category who actually have myeloma. And so that's not a clear study of high-risk myeloma. Two, the primary endpoint is PFS. PFS is not a useful endpoint for treating a pre, let's not call it a precondition, let's call it a condition in which we normally don't treat but observe. In delaying the time until disease recurrence is, is useless. You have to show you really impact survival or quality of life because you're adding toxicity in a time somebody wouldn't be getting any drug at all. Overall survival is unreliable. Many people think that if the trial has a low sample size, we might miss a benefit that actually does exist. But what they don't realize is that when you do find differences between the arm, they're much more likely to be spurious or exaggerated. And you can do the math on that and prove it to yourself. You can read the paper on power failure by Yonides and colleagues in Nature, I think, Biosciences. It is unreliable, and the proof of that is olertamab. Olertamab is a drug used for soft tissue sarcoma. It was approved based on a whopping one-year OS benefit in underpowered phase two, where it's not the primary endpoint. And then in phase three, the curves were superimposable, and the drug was withdrawn from market. It is a useless exercise. Underpowered phase two trials, I'm looking at you, oligomenostatic community, are useless at making assessments on non-primary endpoints like overall survival. The Jesus San Miguel study is useless. It actually probably shouldn't have been done. Because proving PFS benefit is stupid, it's pointless, that's not what we're talking about. We want OS or quality of life, and the OS signal is unreliable. Finally, only eight patients on the control arm, when they progressed, got Revlimid. The rest got delinquent, antiquated, old therapy. Poor post-protocol care. So it's a trial of new drugs up front versus terrible care on the back end. And that's a problem with this study. Enter the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group study. This was initially run to be lenalidomide versus observation. They're going to measure PFS, and then they're going to measure OS as the secondary endpoint. They saw the PFS signal, and this is the overall survival. Look how different it is in the early 1990s. These people are mostly doing super, super well, even the group that's being observed, okay? There's been a lot of stage migration going on here. And in this study, they made a boneheaded decision. The moment they saw the PFS benefit, they popped the champagne, they called up their friend, and I don't know what they did. They popped the champagne, they got excited, and they sabotaged the study because now everybody who was initially assigned to observation was offered Revlimid, so the whole study is crossed over, confounded, useless. You're never, they're, gonna, they're gonna say the reason we didn't find an OS benefit five years from now is because people got all good drugs. They have poisoned their study, literally, with a poison, Revlimid, to answer the useful question. And a study that can't answer a useful question is by definition unethical. They even concede this in the essay that Vincent was linking to, is early therapy justified without clear overall survival benefit? He says, without clear overall survival benefit. He's not saying with a clear overall survival benefit. And he writes, in myeloma, end organ damage includes osteolytic bone lesions and renal failure. At times, these are not reversible. They can cause significant morbidity to patients. We feel reducing the risk of bone lesions and renal failure is sufficient clinical benefit to justify the intervention. So they're back to the same thing, which is, we will say, 
we can't prove an OS benefit, and even though that's what they tried to do in the 1990s, we have moved away from that. We, but we'll be happy if early treatment will defer irreversible renal failure, irreversible anemia with symptoms, and broken bones, okay? But the problem is they don't have that data. Their study didn't look at that data. Vincent conceded that. And the real thing is that broken bones, dialysis, these are all things that feed into quality of life. There's a score that captures everything, the decremental quality of life from Revlimid and the benefit from avoiding these bad things. And that's called health-related quality of life. And there are many metrics you could use and many things. I'm going to show you here. This is just an individual hypothetical. An individual who is being treated for smoldering and who you're observing smoldering. And I think this is what they believe, the investigators believe. That if you were observed for smoldering, sure, you'll have better quality of life initially, the blue line, because you're not taking Revlimid, okay? You're not taking drugs, so your quality of life might be better. But when you progress, there'll be something terrible happen to you, like a broken back, and then your quality of life is going to be precipitously declining, okay? And meanwhile, let's talk about the treated group. You're treated, your quality of life is a little bit worse initially, but you see the pivot point in the curve is actually a bit further out because you're, no, you're not having true myeloma until later. And when you progress, we, we, you're not progressing with such bad complications. We can temper that, temporize that. And so if you integrated all the area under the orange curve, it's going to be bigger than the area under the blue curve. And so quality of life is better if you were to treat. This is what they think, I think. This is what they are assuming in their mind. But the problem is they've never shown it. Yes, anyone can believe anything, but the purpose of doing science is to see if it's true. And they've never actually done the science. They've never actually measured quality of life over time in people like this, which is the perfect way to adjudicate what is the impact of these anemia events and these creatinine bumps. Is it irreversible or not? Health-related quality of life will balance all that out. They've never done it. Why are they not doing it? That's the question. Why are they not doing it? But here's what I think. I will bet you right now on this podcast and anyone... Anyone on this podcast can take me up on this bet. I guarantee you, if they actually did this properly, randomized high-risk smoldering to treatment or, or following closely, no more than two months, as they said in 1993, and treating at that point, I bet quality of life will look like this. There's a decrement from getting treatment early because you're taking toxic drugs. And then I think that most of the progression events are going to be very, very mild, and you'll be able to salvage them, and you'll never have more area under the curve. You actually have worse quality of life from being treated early. This is what I guess. I also don't have data, but this is what I'm willing to put my money on. And in fact, this is probably what we should argue is the null hypothesis. I mean, this is null, that it's no different or that, if anything, it might favor delay of treatment. And the burden is on the makers of the costly, expensive, novel products to prove that giving their products improves outcomes. They got plenty of money. They're sucking down hundreds of thousands of dollars per myeloma patient per year. They have nothing they want more than more myeloma patients. And if they got to change the definition, so be it. They have to prove that people benefit as a result of that. Here's why I think there's going to be no quality of life benefit. Recent paper by Venman and colleagues from the German group, they're looking at what happens when people with smoldering progress, acknowledging the modern slim crab criterion that these people who were in high-risk smoldering should be pulled out, okay? And here's what they find. In the new smoldering classifications, only about 25% of people with smoldering are progressing even over five years, okay? And when they progress, of the, I think, 25 people who actually progress, Seven progress with slim criteria alone, which by definition are asymptomatic, and 13 progress with slim criteria or minor radiographic lesions. And they only have five people with a vertebral fracture. But again, we don't know if they're actually symptomatic from that fracture or if it was just picked up on radiograph. And there's only one person, one person with anemia and hypercalcemia. This generally is 
reassuring. If I recall, there was only one person with renal dysfunction in this paper, and they didn't tell you whether or not they got dialysis or you could turn it around. Yes, one person with renal dysfunction, but they don't tell you if you can turn it around. This is generally reassuring data that when people progress, they mostly progress in the modern world with slim criteria. And so I think this severely undermines Vincent's point. So should you treat high-risk smoldering myeloma? I urge you to read this instead. Persistent challenges with treating multiple myelo myeloma early by Goodman, Sonny Kim, and myself, which appeared in Blood, where we argue why you oughtn't want to treat high-risk smoldering myeloma. And we go further, that even if the slim criteria say you ought to treat deranged free light chain ratios of 100, there's no real good evidence you ought to do that either. And so what this debate is really about is this difference. Currently, Vincent is arguing that this is his line, red line in the sand, on the spectrum of MGUS smoldering high risk and, you know, slim and then actual myeloma on that spectrum. And by the way, it is a spectrum. You know, this is like what Plato said. We're trying to carve nature at its joints. They're, these aren't natural joints. We're just arguing. Okay, he says you should draw your line here, treat to the right, observe to the left. But if you treat to the right for the first few categories, just give them really bad single agent Revlimid, but only if they get over to slim crab criteria, use the three drug combo, which I think is a weird thing to say. He says treat to the right. What I would argue is the right spot is here. You know, definitely people with myeloma, we treat. And also, you know, you don't have to treat everyone with a skewed free, free light chain. You can go see my other video, which I'm going to show you in a second about that. And so I think the line is here. And I think to Aaron's point, what this is a debate is, is should you treat the condition you are typically observing? And back in the diggity, they did three studies to try to answer that. They found no survival benefit. Back then, they cared about survival benefits. Now we find a progression-free survival benefit, but that's tautological. Like, of course, giving anti-cancer drugs will delay the time until M proteins rise in the blood. But that doesn't mean people are really better off as a result of that. The measures of people being better off as a result of that are survival, which was initially the secondary endpoint of the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group study, which they poisoned when they crossed everyone over. So they purposely ruined their own study, which I don't understand why they would do it. Overall survival is not reliable in Jesus San Miguel study because the power is too low, which means any positive result for secondary endpoint is likely to be spurious. In fact, much more likely to be spurious than true. Quality of life is something they've never actually measured or reported, and it's possible they may be right, as Vincent argues, but it's possible they may be wrong, as I will argue is probably the case, and I'm willing to bet that they're wrong. And these endpoints of dialysis and renal failure, they're not directly measuring as Vincent concedes. And so should you treat high-risk smoldering early, the case has not been made. And if anything, the drugs are far more expensive than they ever were, and the burden should be a little bit higher than it is. And the polyp analogy is fundamentally flawed because even the highest-risk polyps, they do have a, quite a propensity to progress to cancer. But removing a polyp is much easier, much easier. I'd, I'd, I'd rather you remove a polyp than take Revlimid for the rest of my life. I mean, who's even questioning that? Of course. So it's natural to remove polyps, and we actually have very limited data about TVAs with high-risk dysplasia. Okay, you like this video? Watch this video. What questions are current myeloma trials not answering, which I gave to the UK group, Autumn Research Day, and I think that's a good summary of my views on this topic. So Twitter spat, and here we've adjudicated it. This is the Plenary Session Podcast. If you listen to the audio feed, you're going to want to watch it on the video. And uh, I'll be back. Ash is coming. I'm going to cover everything in videos on Ash. Until next time. Just Out in JAMA Network Open is a new paper that you need to know about, particularly if you care about long COVID. This paper about long COVID does something that other people don't do. They actually collect patient-reported outcomes, and they actually have a control arm. You see, that's a departure from other people who are in this space. There's a group that does Veterans Affairs data, and what they do is they look at veterans who happen to have a 
PCR-documented COVID-19 infection within the VA system, which isn't all the veterans who got COVID. It's a subset of veterans who have sought the care to get the test at the VA. And then they link them to ICD-10 codes, which are absolutely worthless and not actually a measure of how people feel or function. These authors do something better. This is an important paper. It's called The Association of Initial SARS-CoV-2 Test Positivity with Patient Reported Well-Being Three Months After a Symptomatic Illness. And it's very clever because they take a lot of people coming in to get a COVID test. And these people have some symptoms that have prompted them to seek the test. And they're going to compare people who tested positive for COVID versus negative for COVID. They had something else. They had a usual upper respiratory tract infection. And they're going to follow these people into the future and administer patient-reported outcomes and health-related quality-of-life questionnaires to see what happens to people. So we'll finally be able to separate long COVID from being able being sick with something other than COVID. And that's what Whisk and colleagues do in JAMA Network Open. Now, it isn't perfect. It isn't a perfect study. I'm going to talk about some of the limitations, but it's a whole lot better than the kinds of studies that I've been reading. Here's what they call it, the Innovative Support for Patients with SARS-CoV-2 Infections Registry or INSPIRE. It's to prospectively assess. See, they're actually following people and collecting actual information. They're not looking at ICD-10 codes. They're collecting actual patient-reported outcomes. And they're doing it in a three-to-one ratio. They want three SARS-CoV-2 diagnoses for one typical URI, and they're going to follow those people three months into the future. This is the interim analysis. It's the first thousand people. Put it another way, you can take a look at the consort diagram. 4,000 people consent to this study, 1,400 people are enrolled, 1,000 are analyzed, 700 people with COVID-19, 278 with a different viral infection. And that's what they're going to look at here. There are differences between these two groups, and that's one of the limitations of these studies. Not the same exact people in the world are getting COVID-19 and getting other respiratory tract infections and seeking care at the same place. But there's some sort of factors that may go against one group and some that may go against the other. Let's talk about that. So table one is huge in this paper. It goes through many, many different variables that are different because no one is randomly assigning somebody to blow COVID in your face or blow rhinovirus in your face. So they're going to be different people. And table one is loaded with differences. What are some of those differences? That if you had a non-COVID diagnosis, you were more likely to be non-white, more likely to be unmarried. You had a lower annual family income. You had public insurance. You're more likely to be unemployed. And you were more likely to have a higher prevalence of moderate or severe asthma. What about the group of people with COVID-19? Participants in the COVID-19 positive group reported more symptoms at baseline, more head, ears, eyes, nose, and throat symptoms, and they were more likely to be hospitalized for COVID-19 for their symptomatic illness than people who didn't have a COVID-19 diagnosis. So, you know, these are people seeking care in the same setting. And for many other analyses, we do treat these people, test negative controls, as if they were similar to people who had COVID-19. Here, they're looking at something different what are their long-term patient-reported outcomes? What do we know about long COVID? And I'm going to talk about how we can frame this, knowing that they're slightly different people, and that's the great limitation of this study. You're not going to get around that unless you want to actively infect people with different viruses, and you're not going to get around that. Here is the take-home figure, figure two. The first three categories, they show you higher scores are better, baseline, when you came in with the illness, and then three-month follow-up. Higher scores are better, the arrow is pointing upward, and the right the right five categories, lower scores are better. Let's walk you through cognitive function. COVID-19 patients come in at baseline with slightly higher cognitive function, and it gets even better in three-month follow-up than people with a different virus. Their physical function has a bigger improvement with COVID-19 than a non-COVID-19 illness, and social participation goes up a lot better with COVID-19 than a non-COVID-19 illness. If anything, it looks like getting sick with a upper respiratory tract infection other than COVID is 
worse for you. It looks like it's worse for you. And what about anxiety, depression, fatigue, sleep disturbance, and pain? All of these things look like they are worse. Lower scores are better. They're worse if you have something other than COVID-19. Now, okay, you are going to say these are apples and oranges, not exactly the same people. Some people may have come in with more symptoms. Those are probably the COVID people. And other people may have different demographic variables that may predispose them to sort of long-term symptoms or having a tougher recovery. That's definitely true. But here's the take-home point. COVID-19, long COVID, it's supposed to be like something you've never seen before. It's going to shrink your brain. It's going to obliterate your sperm count. It's going to do all these terrible things. And if that were true, that even with all these differences, you should still see huge, huge differences. And COVID-19 should be way, way worse. But if anything, it looks like roughly they're all in the same ballpark. Yes, some people get better right away. Some people have a tough road to recovery. I will reiterate what I've always said. I have not yet seen any credible evidence that somebody with mild or asymptomatic COVID-19 does any worse than they had they had mild or asymptomatic rhinovirus or influenza or RSV or whatever. And it's certainly the case that somebody with severe COVID who gets on the vent and somebody with severe influenza has a long path to recovery. It's always the case that if you get really sick, you have a long road to recovery. But it's never been the case that you can get an asymptomatic respiratory virus and your brain will shrink. And if your brain is shrinking, I worry it's shrinking when you're reading the paper about the brain shrinking and not actually from the virus. Here, I think you can say roughly there is a long path to recovery. There's no clear evidence that having COVID versus a non-COVID illness is dramatically worse. It's not dramatically worse. And I think you can say that despite the caveats of the differences in population, it's not a different animal. It's not a different beast. It shouldn't be profiled in the Atlantic, okay? It's, it's, it's more or less roughly the same as any upper, upper respiratory tract infection. Although other studies have found that those who recovered from acute SARS-CoV-2 infection are at increased risk of an array of mental health disorders in the subsequent year, participants in the current cohort experience similar rates of dyspepsia symptoms at baseline and follow-up regardless of initial COVID-19 status. It didn't seem to matter. The presence and persistence of poor mental health among nearly one in four participants may reflect a more general pandemic exposure, which participants in both group experienced, because 27% of the people in the, in the COVID, in the non-COVID group, sorry, yeah, in the non-COVID group had it, and 21% in the COVID group. And so the inclusion of a control group allows us to see that a lot of people are suffering. And why are they suffering? It's not the virus invading the brain cells. It's what we did in response, which was disrupt all of the things that make human society thrive and flourish, like concerts and movies and education and socializing, all that disruption. That's not good for anxiety or depression. And the bottom line is here, there's no clear evidence COVID-19 is worse. They write, Similarity and observed changes in both groups may be reflective of the experience of being ill during a pandemic when access to care was hampered by pandemic restrictions, and also life itself, potentially slowing recovery regardless of the underlying infection. These broader pandemic impacts therefore call for increased attention to mental health services irrespective of SARS-CoV-2 status. That's a reach, actually. You need to prove to me that the routine application of the services is actually going to improve things. Okay, that's another thing, but their point is well taken. There's no clear evidence here that COVID-19 is worse than a non-COVID-19 illness. In their limitations, they put this one. This analysis included participants through September 2021, so findings may not be applicable to more recent infections. But if anything, COVID has gotten a lot milder. I mean, we have Omicron variants now, so it's, this is probably the worst case scenario. It's going to be better now. Fourth, COVID tests may yield false negative or false positive results. Yeah, of course, there could be some people who are misclassified here, but it's hard for me to believe that it's going to be the bulk of people. And again, 
all of these outcomes are roughly in the same ballpark. I'm not going to say that COVID is better than upper respiratory tract infection. I don't think this study proves that, but it does prove to me that it's not catastrophically worse. And that's the media claim that it's catastrophically worse. It's not catastrophically worse. It just isn't. Conclusion. In this cohort study, SARS-CoV-2 infection was not associated with worse physical, mental, or social well-being as measured through patient report outcome scores at three months follow-up compared to no SARS-CoV-2 infection. This is an important paper. It does some Something that the veterans group doesn't do, which is use prospective data, prospective controls, measuring symptoms and how people are doing, and not ICD-10 codes, which are used for administrative bullshit. They're used for administrative bullshit, and they're not useful for research. This is a good study. VIA study's no good. Long COVID. You got to do some proof. You need some more evidence before we, I'm going to believe that asymptomatic or mild disease leads to persistent long-term symptoms beyond what would have happened with a routine upper respiratory infection. So you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. Jamma on, Jamma Network Open. Jamma Network Open publication. I'm going to put the link below. Until next time.